Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski, and we're going to open the show as we always do, by reminding everyone that the goal of this series is to present you a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but sometimes outside of GI as well. Dr. John Allen is our guest today, a gastroenterologist and long-term friend and colleague of mine. He began his academic career in research at the University of Minnesota, where he published over 40 original research articles. Despite this success in research, he had a persistent and nagging feeling that he was not following his true passion. And so at the age of 40, he left the university to pursue a new career in private practice, the private practice of gastroenterology at Minnesota Gastroenterology, which we affectionately call Minji. Minji is the largest GI practice in Minnesota and one of the largest GI practices in the country. He ultimately became a member of the board of directors at Minji. He created the Quality Committee and served as the medical director of quality. After 22 years at Minji, John returned to his academic roots, moving to Yale University School of Medicine as professor of medicine and clinical chief of the section of digestive disease. After a few years, he accepted a new position as chief clinical officer of the Michigan faculty group at the University of Michigan, where he currently is in practice today. Welcome to the show, John. Larry, thank you very much. It's really, I appreciate the introduction and I appreciate talking to you again, uh, even virtually. Well, we're virtually, that's the way we have to do it today. So <laughs> that's we right. Make, we make the best of the situations. John, how does the practice of gastroenterology differ between the academic medical center and private practice? Yeah, that's a great question, Larry. You know, the intensity of practice never leaves. Uh, and also the personal interaction with patients. There's really nobody between you and the patient. So that's just a very, very special and honored position. You go to academics and you often have two or three people that are buffering you from the patient either medical students or residents or GI fellows. And the intensity is not there in terms of patient turnover. There's a different type of intensity, but it's a whole different mindset. The appreciation I got for academics is that it allows an individual physician to really hone down on very, very narrow specialties and gain and experience and knowledge that you really don't find often in private practice. So at Michigan, we're taking care of the tertiary and quaternary incredibly complex patients, which is a whole different mindset. So that being said, the academic foundation of, of excuse me, the financial foundation of academics is much different. The payment mechanism in the United States pays very well for high throughput care, like colonoscopy, for example. You just don't find that in academics. So the financial challenges based on the type of practice is really, really quite different. John, since you have these layers uh, buffering you between you and the patient, do you ever feel like you're losing control of the, the care of that patient? Um, you yes, uh, yes and no. I mean, you're still ultimately responsible and you can, there are, there are a lot of, of 
physicians and providers in academic medicine that have very, very tight bonds with their patients. I don't mean to imply that. Um, and you can still have long-term relationships. Um, I mean, we have people here in Michigan that have 20, 25 year relationships with their patients that are equally as close, but there still is in terms of practice, that kind of buffering, which is a different, a bit of a different experience. So you alluded to the financial changes and I don't think the community necessarily understands the intricacies of what it takes to maintain the funding for an academic medical center. And, and you're so correct in private practice, which is where I practiced for 35 years, you're close to the ground. You could see that you could measure how well your production was. And as long as you maintained a level of, of productivity, you knew what kind of an income you were gonna generate. And uh, overhead was, was very controllable. I would imagine that's totally different in the academic medical center. Um, so how do you fund this enormous infrastructure that has to be maintained? Well, first of all, you know, we have extraordinarily high fixed costs and those are fixed costs in facilities and buildings. And so when you start losing marginal income, um, then you, you really pay for it in terms of not being able to fund those fixed costs. So just think of it this way. You do about 15 colonoscopies per day, right? by maybe 11 o'clock or so, you've paid your overhead and everything after that is pure profit. You cut off one colonoscopy at the end of the, uh, end of the day across a big uh, community practice, that's a lot of money that you've cut off. Um, so in academic medicine, you don't have that kind of efficiency. So you don't, it's rare to have that kind of high throughput. So you really lose marginal income. Now we make that up with usually better payer contracts. You know, typically um, when I was at Yale, for example, I think the average managed care rate was about 275% of Medicare, which is really extraordinary. You wouldn't find that in a private practice. Um, here at Michigan, we're one of the lowest paid um, states when it comes to commercial payers. So we don't have that buffer, but with those high fixed costs, the fact that we have to be open 24 seven to get highest acuity care. We are sort of the last, you know, hope for a lot of people in the state of Michigan. So patients that don't have adequate insurance and don't have um, or have very complex diseases come to Michigan. So that's very expensive. And the payment system in the United States does not pay for that kind of complexity usually. So we get all of the professional fees and the ambulatory technical fees into the University of Michigan Medical Group, which is where I'm the chief clinical officer. That's about half of our revenue, which is about 2.3 billion per year. The other half comes from inpatient. But again, we have to fund that kind of fixed infrastructure and almost all of the faculty are working part-time clinical because they have teaching and um, research responsibilities. So you're not making up the kind of revenue per doctor that you make up in community practice. So our operating margins, you know, in an academic center typically run three to 5% operating margin. Um, we have a lot more cash flow per month, but um, you know, that, cat, that differential is in the depreciation. 
And when you have an aging infrastructure, that depreciation is really a lot. So we're operating on relatively thin margins, uh, frankly. The one good thing is that, that COVID brought out was that we're able to borrow and go out on a credit line. So we, not, we went out on a credit line of about a billion dollars and that buffered faculty salaries. Whereas in private practice, once you lose monthly cash flow, you basically lose your income. So that's a huge difference. So in addition to running the medical center and having to take care of complex patients and patients without means to pay you, you also have the challenge of maintaining the academic side, the research and the teaching. So have you seen changes in the funding to that over time? Yeah, I mean, nobody really pays for education. GME funds, which are graduate medical education funds, were cut in the late 80s and again cut um, a lot. So the support for that is very minimal. Now they do support, the, the federal government does support, of course, um, resident training and things like that, but it really doesn't support faculty time. Um, so the teaching time is really taken away from your potential productivity. From a research standpoint, you really have a top tier 20 academic systems in the country that, that really earn significant NIH funds, for example. The rest of the 110 academic centers are not in that same tier. But even if you're in the top tier, NIH funding pays has a cap um, that is uh, for salary that is well below what we have to pay associate professors and full professors. So the clinical enterprise has to make up for that and has to make up for any indirect cost or facility cost that aren't covered by research. So um, the clinical enterprise is really making up and subsidizing a huge amount of research and uh, you know, virtually all of the educational uh, expenditures. You certainly look like you're faced with challenges that academic medical centers were not uh, faced with in, in the past. If you've just turned in, you are listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. John Allen, Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Michigan. John, let's, let's continue, but let's shift gears here for a second uh, and move to value-based care. Right. Pretty, it, it's not difficult to define value-based care in private practice. How do you define value-based care for the academic medical center when you're going back to the payers uh, to renegotiate your contracts and they're looking for more value? How do, how do you provide that value to them? Well, as you know, when we're negotiating, uh, you don't negotiate with Medicare. You don't negotiate with Medicaid usually a little bit. But so the major negotiation we do is with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, for example. So we have not received a per click increase in funding uh, by Blue Cross Blue Shield for over nine years. All of their increase in our revenue has come through some sort of um, goal-based or outcome-based or quality-based increase. So if, if we're thinking about you know, true value-based medicine, like you and I like to think about it, you think, okay, if you get better outcomes for patients, um, you get more money. As you know, we haven't reached that spot in the United States. It's really on meeting quality metrics of some type. 
So for example, our primary care network has almost 40 different quality metrics that they have to meet. A lot of them are process metrics like mammography screening, colonoscopy screening, things like that. Um, but we also have programs uh, about achieving a certain level of hypertension control or hemoglobin A1C control, things like that. So those are the things that form the basis of a lot of our negotiated increase in revenue. And that's what it looks like from an academic medical center. Um, you also get special designations. You know, where Michigan has a very robust surgical outcome uh, program, for example. And if you're in that, you get special um, designations. The star designations for Medicare obviously mean a lot. We're also in uh, what's called the POM ACO, which is the Physicians of Michigan Accountable Care Organization. And through that, we get Medicare waivers. So we get that 5% bump that ACOs um, get for all of Part B. So those are the types of programs that we're in. A lot of times when some of these prototype programs come through, <clears throat> whether they're primary care or oncology programs, it, it's really clear that the amount of effort to meet the metrics for those federal programs simply doesn't cover our costs. So we, we, we sort of shy away from, from those. But um, those are the main value-based care initiatives that we're seeing right now. So you really didn't mention in your list gastrointestinal value-based care initiatives. None, none, zero. <laughs> so I mean, not honestly, nobody cares with money what our adenoma detection rate is or whether we see people back at the appropriate surveillance interval or any of that. Um, within academic medicine, um, you're basically in a huge group, you know, 3,000 faculty. And when we were in... At Yale, we were in um, MIPS, not the accountable care organization, but all of that was basically internal medicine type quality programs, hemoglobin A1C, hypertension. For gastroenterology itself, uh, there are simply no incentive programs that you know come about. You know, we have um, through our access to claims data over the years, we've been able to look at what the most expensive ICD-10 codes are uh, for a, an insured population. And gastroenterology is well represented in the top five. One of the ones that was surprising to me initially, but afterwards was not, was acid reflux. If you, if you list patient diagnoses by cost, GERD winds up very high on the list. And the reason is because of all the non-GI complications that are occurring. It's an obese population with cardiovascular disease, with diabetes, with musculoskeletal complaints as well. And when I think about our GERD patients, um, gastroenterologists over the years wind up sending people to other specialties of care quite often when they're managing uh, a GERD population. Um, the other issue that we have been able to uh, ascertain is that if you look at the entire GI space, over half of the variable cost of care for that entire space is inflammatory bowel disease. 
Right. And it's been a challenge for us to get the payers to even notice how much money they're spending per capita on that patient population. I'm sure you at University of Michigan are seeing a very, very skewed high-risk population of those IBD patients. There's got to be some way of building a value-based initiative around that. So we've tried to negotiate specifically with Blue Cross of Michigan uh, for any type of GI, um, whether it's an episode or value-based care, and they, it has gotten nowhere. Um, so we tried, when I was at the AGA in the leadership position, we tried to negotiate with United Healthcare, for example. And you know their response is that, look, they get terabytes of information in every single day. And for them to parse out something as, for them, small as gastroenterology, uh, they simply can't do it because of their archaic computer systems, first of all. And then to identify provider, site of care, benefit package, and to tie that all together, they simply can't do it. I also sit on the board of directors of Alina Healthcare, as you know, in Minneapolis, big non-academic healthcare system. I even went to them on the, on the um, uh, for Minji and say, look, we can put together an inflammatory bowel disease program, maybe use sonar MD, things like that. And, and their response was, look, we have 22 different payers. The IBD population for any single payer is pretty small. So we, we also can't put that together. So there's no way to really aggregate that well, um, whether it's at a GI level or a disease level that you can really sell to a payer. If you're talking about, you know, complex cardiac surgery, that's another thing. Or if you're talking about avoidable readmissions, uh, that's what they're looking at. Uh, but it's been very hard from a GI standpoint to do that. Yeah, it's, it's been a challenge for us as well. When we, um, when Sonar became the first approved physician-focused payment model uh, under MACRA, at our hearing, CMS informed us that although IBD was 1% of their total patient population, it was 2.5% of their spend. So the spend is there. It's, it's hard getting the attention of the payers. Oncology, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, those are, those are easier um, to get attention. Now, I, I think you, you bring up a good point. I mean, if you can approach Medicare, then all of a sudden, that's a big population, right? Or if we ever have any other sort of national health, you know, health care, that kind of aggregation I can understand. I've, I've also thought that with the consolidation of these big groups, you know, as you know, IgG, um, you know, joined with the, the Texas Alliance. Once you start getting a thousand gastroenterologists together, then all of a sudden you can look internally and you can parse out a population for a specific payer and provide them with outcome data that's really rich. So I could see a huge group like that going to a you know, commercial insurer and saying, you know, we can really provide these outcomes for your patients. Let's negotiate a, you know, a better rate. So I could definitely see that. John, you and I probably got to know each other the best through our joint experience at the AGA. What do you see the future of the, the academic GI societies look like going forward? I think they're gonna be shrunken. Um, and I think they really have to figure out what are their 
top three or four very core strengths. You know, to me, I think the AGA could really put together phenomenal multimedia um, educational material that would be a really good source for anybody. Um, some of the cutting edge science, cutting edge practice, things like that. Things like we're doing right now, for example. I think that's gonna end up being their core strength. You know, when you were president of the AGA, one of your projects was the road ahead. And I remember being very, very impressed with how you had pointed the gastroenterologists in a direction going forward. And I almost see a, a point counterpoint uh, coming up out of this. You and, you and I, you're the editor of clinical gastroenterology and hepatology news. And I sit on that editorial uh, board with you and you can almost see a point counterpoint. No, in, in, in one um, side of the argument would be, well, nobody's doing this for me. I'm going to just continue and crank the colons and, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to push my production up and I'm going to make the most out of a fee for service environment. And then the other side is no, we have to recognize the fact that we're part of this, this big problem and we'd like to be part of the solution to that problem and we should be focused on value. And it's gonna, it's gonna take organizations like the AGA, ACG, ASGE, ASLD to get the pressure on those payers so that value-based initiatives can be developed. Um, I, 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 I looked for leadership and you've had leadership in this in the past. Do you see a possibility of bringing our academic societies together in some way to push value-based care? I do, uh, because you know, value-based care is, first of all, based on science, right? It's based on business efficiency and science. I think if the societies really focused on, you know, what are the best business models? What are the true outcomes that we can show um, from patient satisfaction to getting back to your employment to um, pointing out the tremendous um, disparities that we have among races and economic levels and really focusing on the science and presenting that in a way that makes business in sustainable sense. That, that's a, a, an incredibly valuable thing that nobody else is gonna do, right? I mean, the societies are stepping up and they really are stepping up to point out the, the vast healthcare injustice that we have in this country and the disparities and how do we get around that. They, they are the source of the microbiome registry, for example, or other initiatives like that. And certainly, you know, we're not gonna be practicing medicine like we are now, you know, five years from now. And the reason we're not is because science is gonna move and the societies need to, you know, step up and really push how important the education is, how important the research is, how important the science is um, to get us where we need to go. I mean, look at COVID, for example. 
can you imagine the speed of developing a vaccine of, you know, mapping the genome of the COVID virus and all of those things happening, you know, 10 years ago? I mean, it, it's just mind boggling what we've been able to do and to, to take CRISPR, for example, and, you know, package that in a little, you know, thing the size of a, a deck of cards to identify rapidly whether you have COVID COVID or not is, is absolutely mind boggling. So the society's academic medicine, you know, that's where we need to push the envelope to really keep this going. Otherwise we're gonna be stuck in the, you know, the, doing the same thing we're doing today. And I, I just hope that doesn't happen. John, you're preaching to the choir here with me. I marvel, you know, we, we heard yesterday about the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Right. And to think about this, most people don't know what messenger RNA is. But basically, they fig that after mapping the genome and after uh, being able to identify the spike protein, they actually were able to get messenger RNA that's capable of producing that spike protein, wrapped it up in a nanoparticle that gets injected intramuscularly into you. And this basically becomes a machine that takes over your own cells to make that spike protein, which stimulates the immune system. I mean, that is just genius. That's it's just unbelievable. genius. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so speaking of that, the, the what's really interesting is now that the military is gonna handle the logistics around vaccine distribution, which I think is also a brilliant thing. I mean, who, who else in this country is as good at logistics as our military? But the expense of that vaccine is 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 nothing to sneeze at. We had to go out and buy minus 80 freezers to be able to freeze that. And you know now there's a shortage in this country of minus 80 freezers. That, yeah. And then the distribution is gonna be horrendous. I mean, it's, we'll do it. And I'm very confident, but um, you know, by next summer, next winter, um, I think we'll have enough, enough distribution to really make an impact. But uh, we're gonna be suffering through some hard times between now and then. I, I totally agree, 103 degrees below Fahrenheit is what this has to be maintained at. Right. And so you're not going to be able to go to your doctor's office for a, for no. an immunization. It's just not going to happen. Plus, plus you have to wonder what happens to messenger RNA if that temperature is not maintained entirely through the process. So th this right. is a, a very fragile, <laughs> fragile uh, solution, but a wonderful one. Yeah, well, these are all federal assets. So the regulations around vaccine distribution are going to be horrendous. Well, but it'll be interesting. John, I, I think that brings us to the end of our interview today. I really appreciate you being on. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for, for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at hashtag HCN Now Radio. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.